0: Hey everybody and welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast I am your host Justin Jackson and you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify In today's episode we'll be talking about the NBA and how they are rolling on through the playoffs We'll discuss the NFL getting started and up going We'll talk about some NCAA news and we'll have our best for last Now sit back and get ready to learn something Alrighty, righty, and we are back and welcome into a loaded show today So I know obviously when this will be out on Friday morning that we will have both NFL and NBA games on television Thursday night And we will do a recap of Lakers Rockets and Chiefs Texans in best for last so with that being said, let's jump right into our first segment of the day, and that'll be on the NBA and what's going down there inside the bubble inside the NBA playoffs. So obviously the Miami Heat are the first team to punch their tickets into the conference finals, taking on the Milwaukee Bucks four to one. Now it looked like it was gonna be a sweep there, especially when Giannis ultimately went down with the injury that ended his season, which was a right ankle sprain. It looked like the Heat would take the Bucks down one, two, three, four. But Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe had the playoff game of their lives, and although Tyler Hero and Jimmy Butler tried to fight it off, the Bucks take game four, force a game five, and ultimately the Heat outlast the Alta Tacumbo list Bucks, come game five and finish off the one seed four-to-one, being the first team to punch their ticket into the conference finals. Now, on the other side of the bracket, Toronto and Boston are in an absolute war. Now they go to game seven. I mean, it looked like with .5 seconds left in game three, that Boston might sweep Toronto. And then OG Ananobi hits the shot. Then Toronto wins another game. Boston comes back, wins 3-2 in dominating fashion. And people think, okay, Toronto's out of gas. They're gonna lose game six. And through a double overtime thriller, the Toronto Raptors ultimately force a game seven. And bad blood is starting to boil. They got into an argument with Marcus Smart, led it on Boston side. Nick Nurse ultimately has to direct his team into the locker room because neither team was leaving the court after the final buzzer goes off. I mean, bad blood is starting to boil. This feels like one of those old classic 90s Eastern Conference matchups where guys just didn't like each other. It was physical. It was the rough riding style compared to the West was known as the cool Showtime Lakers all behind the back passing all the backdoor cutting the east was the physical side and so if you look at toronto and boston we're getting a lot of those physical moments a lot of that bad blood starting to boil and with guys maybe staying in the same hotel i mean this would get very interesting they pass each other in the hallway you don't get a chance to go home to your wife and kids and relax and maybe get some of the blood out of your system the bad blood out of your system you're in a hotel with the same people so if you pass them it remember what Marcus Smart said to me when I was going down the court and when I got elbowed in the mouth like Kyle Lowry did with no call that stuff remembers when you see that same person in the food line later that night or the next morning and so I am loving what I'm seeing from the NBA Eastern Conference and now we're going to shift to the west you've got Kawhi going up 3-1 with Paul George on the Denver Nuggets. Jamal Murray has struggled in this series. They are rotating a lot of good defenders on him. They're rotating Patrick Beverly. They're rotating Paul George. Kawhi Leonard takes him from time to time. The Morris twin takes him from time to time. And so when you've got that many dominant defenders rotating on you constantly, anytime they're screening, they're trying to fly Montrez up as high as they can get him. So it pulls the ball out of Murray's hands and forces people like Jokic who ultimately rotate on him quickly now he's kicking a Jeremy Grant he's kicking a Michael Porter Jr. he's kicking a Gary Harris and they're effectively taking the ball out of Murray's hands limiting his shot attempts at all and then having a guy like Jokic start to make decisions instead of just playing basketball he's thinking now he's thinking okay when I catch it and turn the mid range there's going to be two white jerseys in front of me now I have to make a kick out pass to one side the rotation gets back and now everybody's covered for the three and the possession is busted. The Clippers with an absolute tour de force in game one defensively, only allowing the Denver Nuggets to score 12 points. That's a point a minute. That would be good in a football game that is not good in a basketball game. And so when you look at it that way, the Clippers are absolutely rolling right now, still didn't break 100 points, which is mildly concerning considering how great they played defensively. You would think the easy baskets would be there in the easy points, but they're still working really hard for points, not even scoring 100. in last game, uh, it led Michael Porter Jr., who is a young budding star potentially for the Denver Nuggets openly criticizing his coach basically saying that you know it's a coaching decision to keep putting the ball in Murray and Jokic's hands and to be the team like the Clippers you're gonna have to spread the ball out and you're gonna have to get more guys involved and more running plays for more guys you can't be predictable now he's not wrong especially Michael Porter Jr. heated up in the third quarter with 12 13 points nailing catch and shoot jumpers it looked like the Clippers were starting to scramble again defensively and ultimately it started to let the Nuggets Crawl back into the game because now Jokic became even more dangerous because now it's hard to rotate. Murray ended up getting a couple shots off nailing a couple jumpers in the third quarter which conveniently was the quarter that Michael Porter got really really hot and so maybe it was one of those self-serving things as a young guy that hey spread the ball a lot more. I was hitting shots and all of a sudden I stopped getting the ball or it could be just an honest basketball assessment. In my opinion he's not wrong. When you have what the Clippers are doing, they are locking on Jamal Murray, they're pretty much trying to try and make Jokic a playmaker, but for the most part, they're going to lock down on Jamal Murray and make sure he sees two to three bodies every time he gets anywhere near shooting position. And so when you've got somebody like that, especially Murray not being a guy like LeBron size or even a playmaker like Luka with a bigger body, he can't really move those guys out of the way or see over those guys. He's relying on skill to create space get a dribble move get a shot off and so with that many big long defenders in his way he's struggling and so maybe having a guy like Michael Porter Jr starting playing 30 35 minutes although he is a defensive liability a major one I mean they're hunting him every single possession in the pick and roll whoever he's on is coming to the pick to try and force the switch and it's like he's trying to rotate off the ball because he doesn't want to be on the ball at all defending And so that's a liability there, but he's willing to rebound, and obviously he's willing to score. And so I think that Mike Malone is going to have to bite that bullet and start him, start Michael Porter Jr., play him 30 to 35 minutes and just live with the results of him on defense. Treat him like Lou Will is treated by the Clippers. The Clippers know Lou Will is a defensive nightmare, although he's scrappy and he'll get an on-ball steal or off-ball steal if you uh, get too sloppy with the pass or the ball. He's a defensive liability. The Clippers know that, but if he's on the other end coming down, scoring efficiently, the Clippers wouldn't leave him out there and suffer the consequences on defense. And so Mike Malone's gonna have to tell Michael Porter the same thing. Hey, I'm looking for 20 to 25 points from you tonight, because otherwise you're a negative. If he's only scoring 10 points on three for 10 shooting, he probably gave up 14 or 16, so he's a negative on the floor, then that's just something that the Denver Nuggets do not need, especially against a better team than the Los Angeles Clippers and now for the other matchup you've got Houston and the Lakers now the Lakers can end this quickly if they go up 3-1 the series is over you can pack your bags Houston you're done the only hope Houston have of making this go six or even seven games is winning game four Harden had one of his best playoff games of his career and LeBron told him to hold my beer I'm still the king, I'm still the best player on the planet, and flat out outplayed him. Anthony Davis matched what Westbrook gave, and my lord, we had a playoff Rondo sighting with 21 points off the bench, he was nailing threes, he was stealing James Harden, attempted behind the back passes, he was flat out just being a menace and a pest, he was being Rajon Rondo at its finest, also known as playoff Rondo. So if Houston wants any chance to win this series, they've got to win game four. Houston has shot over 40% in 18 games this season. They are 16-2. The two times they have lost, game two of this series and game three of this series. So they're shooting at what they want to shoot. If Mike D'Antoni had to lay out a board and he said, we're going to shoot over 40%, James and Russ are both going to go 430 or near 30 and they're gonna shoot 40% from three, he'd probably say we win every game that way. We're gonna win every time that happens. Up until game two, that was the case. They were perfect 16-0. Game two, they lost, shot over 40%. Game three, they lost, shooting over 40% from three. So that has to be very concerning for Mike D'Antoni, and the confidence and the braggadocia that we heard after game two about how they're very confident even though they lost, that tone was not there in game three. They were saying all the right things in the media. The words came out. There wasn't much feeling behind them. There wasn't much passion behind them. So I think Houston knows that they're teetering. And a loss to the Lakers in game four ends their season because there's no way they're going to beat the Los Angeles Lakers three times in a row. And now for some implications about what's happened inside the bubble. There's Giannis. The biggest domino to fall this offseason is will Giannis or won't Giannis. And that's a 2 Part question. Will he sign the extension or won't he sign the extension? And if he doesn't sign the extension, will he request a trade or won't he request a trade? Now any words on the extension is still gonna be negotiated. They can't even bring it up or mention it until it's off season because technically this season has not concluded and so they are not legally allowed, based on the CBA and things like that, to bring up The contract extension, especially because the salary cap number for next season has to be negotiated between the NBA and the NBPA due to COVID situations and the loss of revenue. So the cap could come down. Before the season started, it was a five year, a hair over a quarter billion dollar contract for Giannis. It may come down to 230. It may come down to 225. It may even behoove Giannis to wait a year to just say, hey, I'm not going to sign the extension, lose out on 25 million dollars. I'll just wait and I'll wait to sign in next offseason before I technically hit true free agency. That way it's still an extension and that way I can still maximize my value. Now, according to Giannis, he said he's committed to running it back in Milwaukee. He's talking about how he loves the city and there's no sign that Giannis will decide ultimately to request a trade. So I think that is good news for the league, in all honesty, because Let's say Giannis decides, man, I want to go to Golden State. What would Golden State give up? Andrew Wiggins, a couple of first-round picks, including this year's number two, obviously. Salary cap space and some second-rounders. I'm not sure what package Golden State could put together. That would make it worth Milwaukee's while to try to run it back one more year. If he says he wants to go to the Clippers, because the Clippers had gotten to the race what could the Clippers offer besides players? I mean, they would offer Landry Shamit, I would assume. Reggie Jackson and Mark and Morrison a signing trade. Zubac maybe gets in the deal. You don't give up Montrezl Harrell, you don't give up Blue Will. They don't have any picks because they gave the Kings ransom for Paul George. The Clippers don't just have enough and they can't do it straight up because Giannis isn't a free agent this offseason, he's a free agent next offseason. So that is a very interesting situation to watch. As of now, he said he has not requested a trade, that he will not request a trade, which is good news for the NBA because it keeps another team in the East viable, especially in a small market. Brooklyn becomes viable, very viable next year. Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving are healthy with Steve Nash as their head coach, must see TV. He's practically the inventor of seven seconds or less. And so that is something to watch. Now in regards to Houston, Houston is in a very peculiar spot. Like I said earlier, if they don't win game four, they're done. It's over, you're not beating the Lakers three times in a row, especially if LeBron is looking across the hall in his hotel and sees that the Clippers are up 3-1 on the Nuggets. He's gonna wanna dispatch the Rockets as soon as possible to try and maximize any amount of rest that he can get or to limit the amount of rest and preparedness that the Clippers can get. Now, if Houston loses, Mike D'Antoni might as well not even try to go back to the Houston facility. He won't be back. The I believe he does not have a contract past this season. I'm almost fairly sure of that. And so would Mike D'Antoni be brought back if they lose in the second round? I don't th- I think the answer is no. I think the obvious answer is no. And second thing, would GM Daryl Moore be brought back? Owner Tim Fertitta was not happy about what happened in the earlier rounds. He was not happy about what happened last season. And he allowed Daryl Morey to go all in on small ball. You trade Chris Paul, who looked great, mind you. You trade Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook. You trade Chris Paul in assets. So a lot of things went to Oklahoma City from the Paul George trade. So Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook basically get swapped for each other. And because of Russ's inability to shoot a basketball past the length of his arm, I mean, his jump shot has completely left him, you decide to trade Clint Capella to free up space and to fully commit to your layup or three offense. If they decide to blow this up after a second round exit, it's gonna be hard for Houston to come back quickly. Ultimately, I think you would have to trade Russ to even get any kind of big man back And try and revert somewhat back to the James Harden pick-and-roll offense that got you within a golden state away, possibly from the NBA Finals not too long ago. But it's going to be hard to maneuver because of cap space, and they don't have any big man on the roster besides Tyson Chandler. And so that'll be interesting to watch. I am very excited about the game tonight. If I had to give a prediction... I would think Lakers will win anywhere from 8 to 12 points. That's pretty much been their rhythm, pretty much been their flow. But they usually end the games in the fourth quarter. Rockets hit early. Rockets don't hit late. LeBron and AD keep close, keep the pace. And then a third person for the team shows up. Whether it's a Rondo, whether it's a KCP, whether it's a Danny Green, whether it's a Kyle Kuzma, somebody else shows up. And so I think the Lakers will win, I'd say, by about 10 tonight. But up next, we will shift to the NFL games are back. I am so excited about that. And we'll talk about that right after this quick break. All righty, guys, and we are back. And so is football. Welcome back, NFL football. I've been a longing in for football. I love basketball. I do. I love NBA basketball, but it's nothing like the NFL. The NFL is the only sport in the world that I can watch anytime, anywhere. It does not matter who's on TV. I honestly don't care. I could watch Jacksonville and Cleveland play 16 times a year and I would just be the most excited person ever because it's NFL football. Or Jacksonville and Cincinnati played 35 times a year, nothing else on TV, I would be perfectly fine watching those two square off. But it's going to get started on Thursday night with the Kansas City Chiefs and the Houston Texans. Obviously, this is a rematch of that crazy divisional round game when the Houston Texans go up 24 0 on the Chiefs in Arrowhead, and they are maybe a fourth down conversion away from putting the Chiefs away. But when it doesn't work, when the Chiefs get the ball back, Mahomes still has confidence and you know the rest of the story. Now, when the quarterback step on the field, that would be about six hundred and thirty three million dollars worth of contracts. Both signed this offseason walking on that field right now. So a massive amount of quarterback investment for two of the top seven or eight quarterbacks in the league right now. So that being said, we're going to talk about Deshaun Watson, and his brand spanking new deal. He signed a four year, $160 million contract extension with the Houston Texans. He will be the highest paid player in the league over the next three seasons. And that is because Patrick Mahomes deal, his monstrosity of a deal, does not kick in for two seasons past this one. So this season and next season, it'll kick in three seasons from now. So with Watson making all that money, they took care of him, but he also got what he wanted reports were rampant that he wanted a three-year deal maybe based on that money three years 120 because he wanted to be able to hit free agency as fast as possible again and also not dictate his entire prime to the Houston Texans franchise ultimately he signs a four-year deal I'm sure for cap reasons Houston might have wanted a five-year deal like Jared Jones is famous for saying we want five-year deals here in Dallas I'm sure the Houston Texans wanted a five-year deal for Deshaun Watson, but his agent fought and got him a a very lucrative four-year deal. And so it allows Houston to say, okay, we've got him on the books for six years, for five or six years, team control for seven or eight years, and it allows Deshaun Watson to go, hey, After three years, if I've got some playoff wins, I can renegotiate, or I can force my hand and make a trade and a team be more willing to trade for me knowing I'm under contract for two, three more years plus team control for another two years after that due to the franchise tag. So Deshaun Watson wasn't the only big contract that was signed. Jadavion Clowney ultimately ended his free agent saga when he decided to choose the Tennessee Titans. Now, as been reported, the New Orleans Saints were trying to literally at one point invent ways to get Jadavion Clowney. So in the NBA, something that's fairly popular, especially with big name moves, is the signing trade. When LeBron went to the Heat, he technically signed his contract with the Cleveland Cavaliers, who immediately traded him to the Miami Heat. When Kevin Durant went to Brooklyn, technically it was a signing trade from Golden State with D'Angelo Russell. So a lot of times when a big free agent moves to not completely leave a team high and dry especially if the team does not have the cap space to straight up sign the player they will obviously negotiate a sign and trade to get something back for the player well in the nfl this doesn't exist it's never been done before it's not even in the rules well the saints called up cleveland bring hey we want Jadavian clowney but we can't take Jadavian clowney's salary at the moment so how about you go sign Jadavion Clowney and immediately trade him to us for a second round pick and a player, right? Effectively a sign trade in the NBA. Well, Cleveland said, shoot, why not? We get a player and we get a second round pick for nothing in theory. Jadavion was never gonna be on our team. So we get to pick up Jadavion Clowney and get a second round pick and get a player. Of course we'll do that. So the, obviously any trade has to clear the league office. So the Saints pick up the phone, call the league office. Ding. Hey, we've negotiated a deal with Cleveland. They're gonna sign to the Abion Clowney, immediately trade him to us for a second round picking a player. The league shut it down. The league said, no, no, that's not happening. Ironically, around the same time, Baltimore was trying to do the same thing. So there was a report that came out that Baltimore was in that same deal, basically, with Jacksonville. Because Jacksonville traded, cut Leonard Fournette, they've traded away pieces, they released players, they have a ton of cap space. I believe Javon Clowney does not want to play for Jacksonville, but they were willing to sign Javon Clowney and immediately trade him to Baltimore for a second-round pick and a player. I assume something similar to the Saints, what they were trying to do with Cleveland. Well, the league shut it down. League shut it both down. I think it's something the league should investigate in doing. It would help everybody. It would let a bad team get a free pick, basically. And it would allow a good team to stay good. Uh, they could sign, the Saints can go all in one year with a Jadavion Clowney, give a team like Cleveland a second-round pick who could use the young, cheap labor, or Baltimore give Jacksonville a second-round pick who could use the young, cheap labor. Baltimore's trying to win right now. I don't see why you wouldn't do that. But back to the story with Jadavion. So... Tennessee ultimately won his services because of his comfortability with Mike Vrabel. Now, how he's comfortable with Mike Vrabel is Mike Vrabel and Bill O'Brien both have New England Patriot connections. Bill O'Brien gets the head coaching job in Houston. Who's in the linebacker room for Houston? Mike Vrabel. Jadeveon Clowney technically is an outside linebacker. So all of his responsibilities comes from Mike Vrabel. Well, Mike Vrabel leaves and because the head man ultimately in Tennessee so Jadavion Clowney referenced this comfortability with Mike Vrabel and the fact that he enjoys working under Mike Vrabel as a reason why he chose Tennessee over New Orleans now if it was purely up to money in New Orleans is working with agents to move money around for other players and do all kinds of things to go one more year into this thing with a Drew Brees led football team but ultimately, it did not work, and Jadeveon chose to sign with the Tennessee Titans. Now, we're going to shift gears a little bit. I'm going to do a new thing. It's going to be called the Jacks Pack, where in this segment, I will pick five games against their point spread, and we're going to see how we do all season. A professional gambler does about 58%, 57%. If you can hit that number, you can be a professional gambler and make real money in it. And Also, we're going to talk about the NFL awards predictions So first we're going to start off with the first edition of the Jacks pack and The first game we're going to dive into is Seattle on the road versus Atlanta Now even though Seattle's on the road versus Atlanta with a lack of crowd home field advantage is kind of a moot point So Seattle getting a field goal here. I'm going to go Seattle Minus two and a half of Atlanta, I'm gonna take Seattle. Now we're gonna shift to the Chargers going on the road versus Cincinnati. Now, later in the year, i would probably go on Cincinnati. Weather gets cold, Joe Burrow gets his feet under him as a number one pick. Him and AJ Green have a wavelength. They figured out what they're gonna do in Cincinnati offensively. Maybe even Justin Herbert has taken over for the Chargers. But considering this is week one, I've seen the hard knocks preparation for the Chargers. Maybe I get a little hard knock spoiled here. I don't see here a lot of great things out of the Bengals camp, and the Bengals aren't that talented of a football team. Sure they should keep the ball on the ground because they have a great running back in Joe Mixon, but when you got a guy like AJ Green outside and the number one pick is a quarterback, you're going to throw the ball. Especially when the head coach comes out of Sean McVay's system, but ultimately I'm going to go with the three points for the Chargers, and I'm gonna pick the Chargers there, minus three over the Bengals. Now, New England at home versus the Dolphins. Again, home and away, not as big a deal as normal. I think the, by some of these lines are a little bit closer with good and bad teams. New England is a six and a half point favorite. So in order for this game to win in Vegas, they're gonna have to win by seven or more, and I would go with New England. Somewhere around 27 to 17. I know Bellatech's gonna want to keep the game low scoring, run the ball, quick short passes with Cam. And with no Cam footage in the new offense, it'll be hard for a defensive coordinator or defensive head coach and Brian Flores to really key in and lock down on what this New England offense is going to look like because Josh McDaniels is an offensive genius. We've seen him with Tebow. We've seen him with Brady. We've seen him with Brissett. We've seen him with Garoppolo. And so when you've got a guy like McDaniels, who can coach many different styles of quarterback, he's probably having a ball with Cam and the stuff that they could put in the system that they couldn't dream of putting in with Tom Brady, who probably has moved less than the Statue of Liberty. And so when you've got a situation like that, New England being six and a half point favorites, swallow the six and a half and go with New England. Now, Indianapolis on the road versus Jacksonville. I waffled back and forth a little bit on this game. This is probably my least favorite pick of the five. But when you have Indianapolis going to a Jacksonville team who have flat out just been gutted this off season. when it comes to the organization changes, you've got the release of Leonard Fournette. This is pretty much Gardner Minshew and DJ Chark on offense. And on defense, it's no one to speak of. I mean, they've even gotten rid of and Ngakwe. So the defense is not gonna be great. It's gonna be pretty porous. I expect Indianapolis to hang at least 30 on Jacksonville. And with Phillip Rivers back there, an experienced quarterback, one of the best, if not the best offensive line. You've got T.Y. Hilton. You've got a stable at running back. You've got a rookie wide receiver Michael Pittman who should play and play well. You've got a pretty good defense led by Darius Leonard. So I think the Colts are going to blow out Jacksonville either going to be blowout or field goal kind of game i would lean more towards the blowout and so i would have indianapolis eating the eight points and beating jacksonville and now for cleveland on the road to baltimore baltimore seven and a half point favorites i would go baltimore here cleveland has a new offense led by new head coach kevin stefanski now we've seen his offense before. He was the offensive coordinator in Minnesota last year, in which Dalvin Cook had a great year. So I expect big numbers out of Nick Chubb and newly paid Kareem Hunt. But we should see a little bit of regression, maybe numbers wise with Baker Mayfield, but up his efficiency. So they got him Austin Hooper, David Njoku was still there, Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, Kareem Hunt Nick Chubb out of the backfield. They drafted him offensive lineman. They signed an offensive lineman. Cleveland is really trying to change how they do business the problem is Baltimore is a buzzsaw anybody on the Baltimore schedule besides the Chiefs should be terrified because you've got Lamar Jackson who's motivated to get to a Super Bowl and win it you've got Mark Ingram you've got J.K. Dobbins you've got Patrick Queen in the middle they drafted a rookie linebacker there you Are fixing your corners now you've got the corners another year in the system you got rid of a guy maybe that was affecting your locker room in Earl Thomas and most importantly like I said earlier you have a angry and motivated Lamar Jackson and so when you've got a situation like that no preseason to really work out the kinks in the offense against live action where your quarterback could be in danger I just think Baltimore's gonna roll here maybe Cleveland backdoor covers it late but I I would take Baltimore by two touchdowns. And so that will wrap up the Jacks pack for a quick review. Seattle take the points, Los Angeles Chargers, I would go over the Bengals, even with a point spread, New England over Miami, Indianapolis over Jacksonville, and Baltimore over Cleveland. Now we're gonna keep track of this all season, give updates every week. Like I said, to be a professional gambler, it's about 58%. So we're definitely looking to hit that number or a little bit higher. Now we're going to shift to the NFL awards. And we're going to do, you know, the big five, which is coach of the year, comeback of the year, MVP, offensive and defensive rookie of the year. So we're going to start off with the rookies. And for defensive rookie of the year, I have number two overall pick Chase Young of the Washington football team. Now I have Chase Young here. I debated between him and and maybe a Jeff Okuda or a Derrick Brown. But I also went with Chase Young because he has the most experienced defensive coach out of the group. Having Ron Rivera, Chase Young looks like an absolute freak on the field. And you know, considering that division, Philadelphia is having injuries on their offensive line. The Dallas offensive line usually has an injury or two, plus it's aging. And then the other team in the division is just not very good. And the New York Giants, especially on the offensive line. So I believe Chase Young will have an advantage to wreak havoc there, at least in those six games. And because they were so bad last year, they had a relatively easy schedule in terms of win percentage of the teams they face. For offensive rookie of the year, I have quarterback Joe Burrow. And the reason why I went quarterback Joe Burrow here and not a guy like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in Kansas City, or even a C.D. Lamb in Dallas is because quarterbacks get a lot of the love Kyler Murray won it last year and his record wasn't that great and so for a receiver or running back to overtake a quarterback in this award you're going to need a lot of yards possibly a historic kind of year Joe Burrow just has to be solid win about five games and he'll probably clinch it and so I'm going to lean Joe Burrow there especially on the kind of offense he's in with Zach Taylor as the head coach in Cincinnati for MVP I have Kyler Murray So I have the streak of second year QBs winning the award continuing. Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes won it a couple years ago. Last year Lamar Jackson took it home for the Ravens in his second year. And so Kyler Mary I believe is perfectly set up to take it home this year for the Arizona Cardinals. Now he has the hardest division out of either of those guys when they won it. Obviously San Francisco was just in the Super Bowl last year, but I believe they have a little bit of a Super Bowl hangover. Seattle. Is a great football team, especially defensively under Pete Carroll. But I just don't think that they'll have enough to really slow Kyler down. And then even like the bad team in the division is pretty solid. With the Los Angeles Rams are quote unquote the bad team, and besides the Cardinals historically last year, and they were in the Super Bowl two seasons ago and looked pretty revamped based on what I can see from Hard Knocks but I just think Kyler Murray puts up big numbers in Cliff Kingsbury's offense. Now, it's the air raid modified for the professional level, but the air raid nonetheless, you add in DeAndre Hopkins, you add in Kenyon Drake, you have Isaiah Simmons now one defense, so your defense can get you some stops, hopefully, and get the ball back to Kyler. So I think he puts up big numbers. He put on weight, which is a sign he could be running the ball more. We've seen that last year with Lamar Jackson put on weight and he goes ridiculous on the ground, call plays and otherwise, because he put on a little more weight to take the hits. Well, we've seen Kyler put on some weight as well. Maybe he's prepared to take off and run a little bit more this season, which will up his MVP chances. For comeback player of the year, I have Cam Newton of the Patriots. I think this is the easiest pick. The Patriots can literally go 7-9, and and Cam Newton is probably the comeback player of the year because nobody else really has a comeback kind of story. Cam Newton obviously had the injuries, was released late, landed on basically $1 million thank you from the heavens contract from the Patriots. 7-9, 8-8, he throws for 3,500 yards and 24 touchdowns. I don't see how he's not the comeback player of the year. Like I said, no one else really has a storyline for it. The script is perfectly written for Cam Newton. I mean, he might even get in MVP conversations if the Patriots go nine and seven, 10 and six, he may get involved in the MVP race. So I just think it's the most obvious pick for Cam Newton to be the comeback player of the year. And coach of the year, I believe would be Arizona Cardinals coach Cliff Kingsbury. Now this is pretty much contingent on MVP Kyler Murray. Because of Kingsbury's rep as a guy who failed up, he got fired at Texas AM only to be hired at USC, only to directly turn around and be hired as the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. If he turns that team around from 5, 10 and 1 to 10 and 6, maybe even 11 and 5, they could be in the playoffs, possibly even fight Seattle and San Francisco for the division. And i don't see how kyler is not the mvp and cliff kingsbury is not the coach of the year especially considering that he's doing it fairly unconventionally as far as nfl circles are concerned so just a quick touch on some stuff the nfl is doing just to shift a little bit on what they are doing in terms of how they're handling games the chiefs and the texans reportedly are trying to work together to come with some sort of message pregame. So that could be everybody staying in the locker room for the national anthem. That could be one unified nailing like the NBA did. That could be other ideas, reportedly multiple teams or multiple games are trying to make a unified message, similar to what the NBA did when they all decided to kneel or what the WNBA did when they had the Jacob Blake shirts on or what MLS did. They're trying to maybe have a unified message all 32 teams play week one. So to see all of the players from all the teams not on the field for the national anthem or kneeling for the national anthem or something like that to show that they are in the cause and unified as well. So that will be something to watch. Reportedly, the NFL is going to put in racism on the white behind the, all the end zones. So when you get into the red zone, you're gonna see the words in racism on the TV screen. When you show the behind camera angles or the above for the kickoff, you're gonna see end racism. So it is a great idea for the NFL to put that there. So that'll be great to look at and great to see. And now up next, we're going to shift quickly to a little NCAA basketball news. Alrighty guys, and we are back for a little quick segment on some NCAA basketball news and what's happening. So the coaches of the ACC have proposed that due to the shortened season, revenue losses, and things of that nature, they want a NCAA tournament where every single school from the NCAA is in the tournament. So basically the regular season would be just a giant warm-up and a bunch of seating which is what it is anyway for the NCAA for the most part, but every single team in D1 makes the NCAA tournament. Now you're probably thinking if you, you know, follow college football, man, that's a lot of teams, but you know, going from 68 to 120 or 124 isn't that bad. Well, football divides out the FBS, which is the Football Bowl Subdivision, and the FCS, which is the Football Championship Subdivision, is still division one though so for instance southern university or southeastern or north dakota state is still division one the same as alabama lsu florida usc they're all division one so in this case since basketball is not divided that way all 350 some odd schools would be eligible for the ncaa tournament now it doesn't divide out evenly. There would be one extra team. So I assume if the NCAA decided to do this, that they would have the last two teams, in my opinion, play for the right to be to play the absolute one seed. So it will be a great first game and then probably a destruction by like 70, <laughs> their next game, but it would be a school that would probably never make the NCAA tournament would qualify for the tournament in this scenario because everybody would make it. North Carolina coach Roy Williams framed it as a celebration of college basketball. It is a way to keep everyone safe. It is a way to give everybody a fair shot at something they probably won't get a fair shot at ever because everyone's gonna make it. So if I was the NCAA, I would do it. When I first heard the news, I was staunchly against it. I was like, how could the NCAA do this? It's not gonna matter. No one's gonna watch Kentucky play Panera Bread State in the first round, it's not going to happen. But then I thought about it because most schools, I would imagine, are going to play conference only basketball schedules. You don't get those small schools, the revenue that they would get from going to Kentucky and getting beat by 60. Okay, They still get a pretty decent check from showing up. You won't get the revenue of the preseason tournaments of Maui and the Bahamas and things of that nature you won't get those revenues. So if everyone's in the tournament, that's a guaranteed multiple rounds. And then based on division, you're only really adding two rounds to the tournament. So instead of someone having to win six games to win the championship, they have to win eight. Well, the first two more than likely, they're gonna be fairly big favorites. First three or four even. They're gonna be fairly big favorites because four games in previously, you're in the final four of the Elite Eight. Now four games in, you're in the round of 32. So, schools like Kentucky and Duke won't be that affected by having to play the extra games. Now, if you look at it, I say you should do it this way. You should have the first two rounds before you get to the traditional round of 68 or 64, you play the first two rounds, higher seed has home court advantage. So that way you don't have to worry about hosting all in one city. You just say, hey, higher seed, you have home court advantage for the first two rounds. And then once you get into the traditional number of 64 or 68, that's when you can divide off and have the East region and the South region and the North region and the West region, then you can divide off and it's a regular NCAA tournament from there. So it's not as crazy as originally I thought it could be or thought it would be, but it's still to be very, very wild to see Panera Bread State (laughs) in the NCAA tournament playing Kentucky in the first round. Or seeing, you know, HBCU, like an Alabama State or someone like that, that never would have a shot at the blade tournament because they're not even a good SWAC school playing Duke or North Carolina in the first round. So that would be interesting to see and interesting to watch. Not sure how the ratings would do early, but it would be very interesting nonetheless But up next, we're going to shift to our best for last, which is going to be the recap of Lakers Rockets game four and Kansas City Chiefs and Houston Texans kicking off a very different NFL season. Alrighty guys, and we are back with best for last and Wow, what a night of sports sports are back in a full-fledged Actually today was the first day in sports history that we had the NBA the NFL the WNBA the MLS all on at one time even sprinkling on NHRA for my drag racing fans and so giving a recap of of the texans versus the chiefs and the lakers versus the rockets i said it earlier i said if the rockets don't win game four it's over and tonight was the clincher yes the rockets had a furious run of like a 17 or two run to make it a lot closer than the, the game played on the final scoreboard but the lakers were in full control throughout lebron controlled the game throughout it was pretty obvious He had full control. There was no moments of lapse. There was no moments where you even thought the Rockets had a real shot at it. Even when the spurt happened, I kept saying, man, the Lakers just need one shot. The Lakers just need one shot. Rajon Rondo has been playing spectacular. Anthony Davis dominated the smaller opponents of the Houston Rockets. And now it's a 3-1 series. lakers defense really swarmed it was evident that coach frank vogel and the rest of the lakers coaching staff had a clear and definite plan for how they wanted to attack james harden he only had two made field goals entering the fourth quarter when you look at something like that james harden is a leading scorer in the nba he's led the nba in scoring three four times he averaged over 30 points a game pretty easily this season and to limit him to two made field goals entering the fourth quarter is tremendous defense. And kudos to the Lakers for that. And so the 3-1 lead, maybe Houston has one last gasp in game five. I don't think so. I think they might have used their last big spurt. Although you can see they had a little swagger leaving the court. We're going down 3-1. Russell Westbrook starting to unravel in terms of emotionally. He's getting in arguments. He's talking trash to people. He's being Russell Westbrook to an extreme, and it's a clear sign of frustration. James Harden looks like he's not even here anymore. He was extremely passive, not looking for his own shot, similar to Jamal Murray against the Clippers. So the Lakers ultimately are up 3-1. The Clippers are up 3-1 against the Nuggets, and we're going to get the battle for LA for the right for either Kawhi Leonard or LeBron James to have the opportunity to win their third final MVP with their third team, the first person in history to do so switching gears to the nfl glad it's back it's like i said it's been a long road a really long road with no football i mean the last football game we've seen as a country in terms of professional or collegiate was february with a super bowl now we've got some small time college games but nothing to really wake up the national pride in football and then we got the defending super bowl champion chiefs along with a very talented Houston Texans squad. Pre-game, I know I spoke earlier about they were thinking about doing something together. They ended up locking arms across the field. All teams, both teams, locked arms across the field with Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson being the duo in the middle. So they'd be, you know, the team that was that was a divider. Mahomes on one side with his Chiefs, Watson on the other side with his Texans. They locked arms, everybody all the way across. And that's what they did to protest, to show their solidarity, show their unity. Now, the Chiefs fans booed. They were only about 22% capacity, so about 17,000 fans, and it was audible booze through the mic. It was audible cheers and they did something well on the field, but it was audible booze when they locked arms for the national anthem. The Chiefs, to their credit, had a montage, had words of Black Lives Matter and it takes all of us, but clearly the sentiment was not shared throughout the crowd, and it was made with some booze. But in terms of the on-the-field action, the Chiefs struck a goldmine, and his name is Clyde Edwards-Elair, the running back out of LSU. Now, I spoke about him in my draft episode, that he could be a steal of a draft when he lands in a perfect system for him. He's only about 5'7", but he's 207 pounds, and he's quick. So if you try to put him in a situation where it's a zone-read scheme, it's a zone-blocking scheme, it's not necessarily the best for him. But being in a spread offense, it's very similar to what he saw at LSU. And considering that the weapons the Chiefs had, he's going to face five, six-man boxers all year. Maybe for his entire career as long as he's a Chief in the current situation. And you saw what he did at LSU. He caused a lot of damage. And tonight he did that as well he went over 100 yards first running back to do so for a defending Super Bowl champion opening week he went over 100 yards he scored a touchdown and he was a couple of great JJ Watt defensive stands away from maybe having two or three touchdowns in his debut clearly the Chiefs want to run the ball they went under center a lot more than they did last year they handed the ball off a lot more than they did last year maybe it could just be the first game Eric bien and Andy Reid trying to throw off the center of the league But it's clear they love Clyde Edwards-Dillair. Andy Reid called him a better version of Ryan Westbrook. And it's clear they're going to use him this season. Now Patrick Mahomes looked like Patrick Mahomes. He had a couple of signature plays where he was running to his left, throwing back across the body, and Robinson unfortunately dropped the ball. Otherwise, we could have had a couple of great Chiefs highlights, including a couple of dimes that Mahomes threw to Robinson. But he looked like himself. The Chiefs defense was staunch. Now, I'm not sure if that's a credit to the Chiefs defense because it kind of wilted towards the end. Or is that a shot and a sign that Bill O'Brien may have ruined the Houston Texans. And for that matter, Deshaun Watson's next few years of his career. Look, when a trade happened for DeAndre Hopkins to get David Johnson, it was a shocker. It was an eyebrow raiser. And it was something that personally I thought should not have been done. Uh, I share that sentiment with a lot of people, and I thought it was a big no-no to why head coaches should be general managers, be the final decision maker on a team. Yes, you should have input because you're the coach, but the final decision needs to be a personnel guy, and I think he let personal feelings get in the way of business. And so he basically has strapped Deshaun Watson with not a number one receiver. You're depending on Will Fuller or Brandon Cook to step up. Will Fuller's never been a number one receiver, and Brandon Cooks on his fourth team in seven years. Sean Payton said no. Bill Belichick said no. Sean McVay said no. So when you've got a no list that features Sean Payton, top three offensive mind in the game. Sean McVay, top three or four offensive mind in the game. And the greatest coach of all time figured that you're either two-injury-pwned, or that you're just not worth what they're investing in you. They've all traded you. Now, two teams got first round picks out of the situation. But when they decided to trade you, it's just not a situation where Bill O'Brien is going to have to depend on now Brandon Cooks being his number one. Or Will Fuller being his number one. You got David Johnson. That On the first couple of drives, people were like, yeah, that's why you go get David Johnson. And then he turned back into David Johnson. It was like the clock struck midnight. The carrots turned back into a pumpkin. It just wasn't great. He turned back into the David Johnson of not his super year, but every other year of his career. The offensive line needs work. It still needs work. Now, I figured offensive line units would struggle more than any other unit on the field because their unit is all about continuity and all about, hey, if the left tackle takes this step, he knows the left guard is going to protect this hip, et cetera, et cetera. When you're don't have any real practice against live reps, against people against your own team, you're you know, you hear a call for the defense, you know it, you may overplay it in practice. So having that experience against a live team, offensive line units are gonna struggle. But I mean they were losing one-on-one battles. A lot. Deshaun Watson was having to run. A lot. It looks a lot like the Deshaun Watson tapes of old. I hope he has an injury protection in that contract. He's gonna need it. So hopefully the Houston Texans can get their act together, but the Chiefs look dominant. The Chiefs look like the Super Bowl champion that they are, and they are barreling through their season. But it was great to have sports back. I had Lakers Rockets on one screen, Texans Chiefs on another screen. It was especially great to watch sports being back, and I cannot wait till we get more of it. But that is going to wrap up today's show This is by far the longest show I hope you guys enjoyed it I hope you guys listened all the way through Tell your friends about us We do this every week, every Friday At 11am, a new episode comes out So, like I said Tell your friends about us Follow the Twitter at JTimesports I do plenty of updates Breaking news, I'm always on that thing Tweeting about what's going down in the sports world So you're always connected if you Follow that page But I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. And this is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.